Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad Podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. Well, Ian, it's it's awesome to be back in the room with you again um, as we talk about some legal issues that will hopefully help clients. And to follow our format, we're uh, one of the things we're looking for is sort of the current legal issues that are uh, among us right now. So. As I was looking yesterday uh, for some uh, issues, one thing I came across was in the Wall Street, there was an article about that's titled Companies Lease Offices in New York Suburb to Pick Bankruptcy Judge. And so I thought, wow, let me look at that and see what that's about. So uh, in what they were talking about was where uh, companies know in essence that they're going to file bankruptcy and obviously do some planning, which is not all that unusual. Um, and these are these are fairly larger bankruptcies, but I would suspect that this probably happens even in some smaller ones. But the the issue is the companies are in essence leasing an office somewhere else in a in a different geographical area that they that they normally uh, may be operating uh, for the specific purpose of uh, picking a bankruptcy judge, right? If they want to make sure that there's a certain judge handling the case, and uh, just for our listeners. Bankruptcy judges typically uh, don't rotate through a bankruptcy uh, case. What happens is there's a judge assigned based upon where they file bankruptcy, um, and that judge generally stays with the case from the uh, beginning of it to the end, unless for some reason the judge retires or has to step out. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. So, you know, we, we get this all the time. People call us and, hey, you know, does it matter where you file your lawsuit. Well, yeah, it actually does matter. Uh, thankfully, there, there are rules, even in the bankruptcy court, as to where you can file, you know. And so, um, you know, I, don't know, I know you've had these kind of circumstances before where a client will say, you know, uh, can we pick the judge or can we pick the court? Uh, how do you handle that? How, how do you typically respond to that? Well, if we're in state court, I tell them typically no. Um, we do sometimes uh, try to position ourselves in front of a judge that we think will be uh, not necessarily sympathetic to the case, but just will understand the issues in the case. Maybe we know that judge's background. Um, so we, we want to have a judge that uh, is well suited for the case. But uh, the way things work, a lot of times we don't get a lot of say in that. And sometimes the judge you think you're going to have isn't who's actually sitting on the bench whenever you get in the courtroom. Yeah. So one of the, um, one of the, um, quotes that was in this article was from a retired uh, judge, bankruptcy judge. So I was glad to read this, or that at least he said this and not someone else. But So the quote is this. It says, a good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge. And that was from Kevin Carey, who is a retired Delaware bankruptcy judge. So again, as, as, as I say that, I want to make sure people understand, uh, judges, I really do believe uh, most for the most part, right? And I mean, they're human, right? But knowing the judge is a huge help. That's not because the judge is going to break the law and do something unlawful. Um, but I tell people when it comes down to a question, right? And there's, it's 50-50, right? And the law doesn't give you a, a clear direction one way or the other. If the judge knows you as an attorney, 
um, and the judge respects you because you've been honest uh, with the court and there's a good history there. That make, does he, Do you think that makes a difference, Ian? I think it does. Uh, I mean, I, I think we're... We're certainly not saying that a judge is going to do anything uh, unlawful. However, um, I think that judges do pay attention to who's in front of them. And if you've always been honest, if you've always shot straight with the judge on what the law is, if you don't take unreasonable positions, it's more likely that a judge is going to believe whatever it is that you're trying to convince them of. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure that, that we've said it over and over. Truly, the judges that we are before... I'd say almost 10, 10 out of 10 are not going to break the law and we would never mislead a judge uh, for the purpose of the benefit of a particular client. Um, but knowing the judges makes a huge difference, right? It's just the personal interaction. Um, and, and they lean on us for, to make sure that we're being honest to, with them. Right. I mean, we, we have an obligation to do that, but um, being honest with them makes a huge difference, but so I was glad to see the judge made that comment, not a lawyer. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's something that, that, you know, if you, not necessarily that our listeners are, are contemplating filing bankruptcy uh, from a business standpoint, but just from a, a, a court shopping or a judge shopping, um, that's really difficult to do outside of bankruptcy court. Uh, federal courts a little bit, maybe a little bit different than uh, state courts are, but that sort of gives us a little bit of an, a guideline. And as Ian was saying, there there are laws in North Carolina that um, direct us based off the rules of civil procedure as to where we can file cases, uh, certainly in the state court. And even in the business court, there, there are particular reasons you need to file in one place or the other. Um, so there's not quite as much of the shopping necessarily, but obviously if there was a company that was, say, based in, I'm just going to say Greensboro, because that's a different judicial district. Um, and they felt like there was a, a better argument for being in a court in, say, Raleigh or another area that's in a different judicial district. I guess there's a theory that they could open up an office there temporarily uh, for that purpose. But again, I'm not real sure that's going to necessarily get you into that court. Because if there are people that on the other side of the issue that say, no, 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 that's just a that's just a fluke. Right? They just did that so they could judge shop. He may wind up being back in the original jurisdiction anyway. Yeah, and I also think it's worth pointing out that under the rules of civil procedure, um, someone has to challenge venue in That's order right. to get you out of a particular court. So if everybody agrees to have a case heard in Wake County, even though that's not where it really belongs, uh, it would be unlikely that the court's going to do anything on its own initiative to change that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, hopefully that it's helpful to people. Um, so when you read these articles or you're trying to plan for your business, um, and you may have these kinds of issues popping up, hopefully that helps you gives you a little bit of information. So today we're going to be talking about demand letters and how that, uh, helps us tonight. So Ian, take us off in that, Beth, what's that look like? Yeah. So, uh, I think the first question is what is a demand letter? Uh, and really it's exactly what it says it is. It's a demand that someone either do or not do something. Um, in the credit and collections world, this is generally a demand that somebody pay their outstanding balance. Um, it may take the form of uh, a cease and desist letter, which uh, people often talk about that they're going to send a cease and desist letter, and we see them probably once or twice a month that our clients receive. But in general, a cease and desist letter is just 
uh, a lawyer asking you not to do something. It has no effect of a court order or anything like that. Um, but generally, a demand letter is just uh, you as the client sending a letter to someone that you are having some kind of a disagreement with, uh, demanding, requesting that they uh, either do or not do something. Yeah. Um, so we get sometimes this question, you know, do, do demand letters really have legal significance? And it, sometimes it, it really, the answer really depends on the circumstances. Um, sometimes a demand letter is just a way to outline your side of the case uh, to the other side uh, in an attempt to get them uh, talking, to, to let them know that you're there um, and to sort of outline the, the scope of the issues. Uh, also, you're inviting them to the discussion about a resolution of the, whatever the, the dispute is and demanding that they resolve it in a particular way, right? Um, so, obviously, if there's like a car accident or some kind of uh, accident litigation or a complex business case, right, it, it outlines generally what the, or at least at least sets out the, the issues that might be coming up. Um, since some, also in some circumstances, the demand letter could be uh, required to put someone on notice before you take some action. For example, in some contracts, it says you have to give notice uh, to the other side if there's an issue. Uh, so that's something that you might want to look at from a contractual standpoint. Uh, and it could be also in other times that we send a demand letter because we need to do that because of uh, an attempt to recover an attorney's fees provision in a contract or by statute. So, uh, like in some uh, issues, like if there's a note or uh, open account or, you know, uh, uh, a revolving account that has not been paid, uh, you can send a demand letter that triggers the attorney's fees provision. And there's a particular statute in that's it's 6-21.2, which is the North House statutes. But uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so 6-21.2 is something that we cite to in our demand letters whenever we're trying to collect money from uh, an account holder on behalf of one of our clients. And um, it's kind of a lengthy statute. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but uh, I will point out uh, a word in section five, which is the word notify. Um, so that's the whole idea behind uh, 6-21.2 is that before you can add attorney's fees on to the outstanding balance, you have to notify the party that owes the money that you are going, that you intend to do that. Um, and it's not just that you notify them that you intend to add on the attorney's fees, you have to give them five days to pay the balance without the attorney's fees before you can add those attorney's fees on. Um, so the implication from this uh, is that if that demand hasn't been made, if you haven't given them notice, then a court is not going to enforce the attorney's fees provision in your contract. Um, so the expense of the demand letter is really justified here because it permits you to add on your attorney's fees uh, for the entire litigation. Uh, so what we usually do is we'll attach our demand letter as an exhibit to our subsequently filed lawsuit. That way there's no question that we sent it we include an allegation that on such and such date, we um, made a demand, notified the party that we were going to seek to enforce the attorney's fees provision, uh, and we gave them five days to uh, 
pay the balance without the attorney's fees. Usually we'll also include a, a section in the lawsuit, giving them another five days, just kind of a belt and suspenders approach. That way, if the court decides that the demand letter wasn't received or you know, whatever, we've, uh, we've really doubly complied with 6-21.2. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, no, I was just going to say, I, we've, I, I know we get a lot of uh, communications from our clients to say, hey, look, can you send them a 10-day demand? And I know initially it would say, yeah, okay. So we send a demand letter and give them 10 days. Um, and then finally we started asking some of our clients who were saying, that, I was like, do you really want to give them 10? Because the statute only says five. And they're like, well, no, give them five. Um, and so, because the statute says five days um, and they have to pay that within five days or else the, the attorney's fees provision kicks in. Um, and so once you send that, so I just make sure people understand there is no legal significance of a 10 day demand letter by statute, your contract might require it, or there may be another reason you want to do a 10 day, but the statute says five. So go with a shorter period, obviously. Right. And, uh, to kind of piggyback on that, uh, the five days are not business days. They are calendar days. And it says in the statute, it's five days from the date of the letter. So not even five days from the date that the letter is received. Uh, I think that's an important thing to note, uh, especially if you happen to be receiving one of these letters, uh, your time period is likely almost up by the time it gets in your hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, so what, what, what kind of content or what goes into the demand letter generally? And it also, again, depends on what type of case, you know, you've got uh, what, what you might put in there. So, Generally, again, it's a description of the relationship of the parties and of the dispute. So, you know, they, if your customer or your, who you contracted with, you know, they bought goods from you or supplies or there's been an injury uh, in some, some manner or the business partners uh, with, our, uh, with our client and you unfairly, you know, did X, Y, or Z uh, by virtue of taking advantage of the company or the other shareholders. Uh, or there's some, there's some violation of the terms of a non-compete. Those just are some examples that we see. Um, it's also a request that some action, some specific action be taken, you know, to, to stop doing something or to start doing something or to comply with the contract or to pay a certain amount. Um, those are some things to do. Um, a time period for compliance. That may be statute specific. It could be a, a you know, general law that says this is how it, uh, the time period it should be applied in, or it could be by contract, um, or it may just be within a reasonable period of time. Again, that's circumstance driven. Um, and it's also, you know, a, use a preservation notice. Um, it's in, you know, generally mostly complex cases uh, that we ask the other party to preserve certain documents uh, that we're going to be looking for as evidence later on. And, and I'll tell you, Ian, I, I you know, know this, the preservation notice um, has started probably coming around a lot more now than it was, say, five years ago. Um, and generally what that says is, is you need to save your emails, your voicemails, any kind of um, electronic um, documents. And, and the thing I have found out, at least I feel like it is, and I, I certainly tell our clients this, if you get a demand letter, right, that says you need to pay this or to do this, whatever it is. And there's a preservation piece to it as well. Uh, the heat's turned up. And number one, uh, you know, you need to respond to it. But number two, you have a now an affirmative obligation to go about 
protecting that information to notify your IT department if you have an IT department to say, hey, look, make sure if we're having if we have records, you know, voicemail, email, other kinds of electronic records, to make sure that doesn't get automatically deleted if there's some kind of a provision in their company that says we delete information that's this old, right? Whatever that may be. Now you gotta go protect it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think the preservation notice really is designed uh, as an initial matter to stop those routine destruction procedures that are in place, not because somebody's trying to get rid of evidence, but really just sure. because someone's trying to uh, maintain a, a lesser amount of data on their system. Um, but part of the reason that I like to include a preservation notice is, uh, you know, especially with smaller companies, a lot of communications happen via text message. And I want to do my best to stop uh, whoever has the text messages from going through and deleting potentially really important evidence. I mean, if they've mm -hmm. sent messages or received messages that are important to the case, then we need to instruct them not to destroy it. And then if they destroy it after we have directed them not to do it, we can get a, a good uh, instruction to the jury if the case gets that far uh, regarding spoliation of evidence and that the jury's basically to assume that whatever was deleted was bad for the deleting party. Yeah. Isn't there some some evidentiary rules to Ian about if, if a party if it's proven that they eventually deleted information that there's a, some other provisions by statute where the judge can hammer the other side based off of the damages? Yeah, I, I would never ever want to be standing beside a client who has proven to have uh, deleted information because the judge is going to do everything in his or her power to really make that person have a bad day in court. Yeah. And, you know, this is not the topic of our of our discussion today, but I, and I know you've seen it, too, Ian. I can't tell you the number of times when we've been in a case and people say, well, you know, um, we you know, I don't know where that we lost that information or our, our, our computers went down and, you know, we had a problem where, you know, we uh, we can't pull up the, the backups or, you know, blah, blah. And everybody in the room realizes that they're lying, right? I, I hate to be in that situation, um, but I've seen it a number of times. And, and it's interesting that people, when that happens, they sometimes can pull up some information they think is helpful to them, but other the other information got lost, right? Um, that is not where you want to be. Um, you want to make sure you do everything you can to protect your information. And, um, you know, even the times when the court reporter, you know, after a while, you, you know, they, somebody's testifying, well, yeah, our, our servers died and we had to reboot them and we lost this information. Nobody in the room believes them. You, have you ever been in that circumstance? Yeah, I have. It's kind of the, the selective boating accident where half the stuff went down yeah. with the ship, but, uh, some of it didn't. And, and that's just not going to fly. Yeah. Not a good place to be in, so plan plan accordingly. Um, so, what about some other instances when a demand letter uh, may not be necessary? Yeah. So, a question that I get a lot of times is, are demand letters a waste of money? Yeah. And I really think that uh, that depends on how you look at it. Uh, I would say, uh, and James, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Uh, that most of the time demand letters don't achieve our desired result of resolving a case. Sometimes they do, and that's great, and everybody is usually happy. Uh, but most of the time, uh, I would say probably 75% of the time at least, a demand letter 
lands with whoever we sent it to, and then that person either ignores it, disagrees, or you know, just throws it in the trash, um, and we don't reach a resolution. Um, one thing that I would tell you, though, is that if you're going to go through the exercise of writing a demand letter, having your lawyer uh, go through that exercise, that you need to make sure you're being reasonable about what you're requesting. Um, you know, obviously, on some collection cases, you only have to give the other party five days to respond. Uh, if you don't have a statutory time period, what you might consider doing is thinking, all right, well, if I'm going to send this letter, how long should it take them to do what we're asking them to do? So don't send a demand letter at five o'clock on Friday asking for someone to do something within 24 hours, because chances are they're not even going to look at it until the following Monday. So you need to make sure that you're setting yourself up to be as successful as possible with the understanding that uh, it is probably not going to be successful. Um, so what I, I sometimes tell people is that it's not a waste of money uh, because you might save a lot of money on legal fees. I mean, if you send a $500 demand letter and uh, save $10,000 in legal fees, that was money very well spent. Uh, alternatively, if you're required by statute to send a demand letter before you can tackle on legal fees, well, that uh, pays for itself multiple times over in most cases. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice. Um, so are there times you think when a demand letter is not necessary? It really depends, again, on the circumstances, but there are certainly times when it just doesn't help, right? Unless your contract or statute requires that you send a written demand uh, before you start uh, filing a lawsuit, then there's no really necessarily legal reason to do it there may be a reason to do it just to put everybody on notice or to give them the information um and sometimes that helps um or additionally if you give a notice uh or if we can't give a notice uh under uh 6-21.2 um that the actual lawsuit uh, usually we do this as a, as a fallback provision um but that's that circumstances and again sometimes we do a demand letter just even though it's not legally required by statute or the contract, just so the other side does have your contact information. Because uh, I tell you, I can't tell you the times I've called and go, well, you know, they don't know me. They've never heard of me. They don't have anything in writing. And I, I mean, granted, I'd probably say the same thing. I, I'm going to call the person I had a, I have a dispute with. Um, but sometimes, you know, sending the, the letter helps. And other times it's not a legal issue at all. Another example might be where you've got a lien case. Uh, you've provided you know, labor materials to a construction site, uh, and there's no contract. And then the attorney's fees motion uh, will be made pursuant to the lien statute. There's a provision there if you don't have a contract that calls for uh, attorney's fees. Um, generally, we suggest there that the clients just go ahead and file their lien in lieu of sending a demand letter. Uh, which costs uh, money, of course, and then also filing a lien, which costs additional dollars. Um, there, you know, we're looking at a step towards resolution prior to filing a lawsuit, but you can certainly do that. And then I, I'm, the other thing I would say is if, you, if you're if you doing that and you don't have a contract, then you have a bigger problem. You need to hire either us or somebody else to help you uh, have a contract because you definitely need to have that relationship and protect yourself in writing. So, um Ian, how about uh, how much uh, time do you normally give someone who responds to a demand letter? Well, I think it uh, it really depends on how they respond. Um, so, 
if if I send a demand letter to someone and I either get a letter or a phone call or an email saying, <clears throat> hey, I want to talk about this, then uh, we'll certainly go through the exercise of having a conversation and to say, you know, we're not going to bid against ourselves. If we demand that they pay $15,000, I'm not looking to have a conversation about what it is we want. I've already sent you a letter. I, it's pretty clear what we want. Um, but if they want to make a counter offer or something like that, then uh, generally we'll give them as much time as is necessary as long as the discussion is going in a productive way. But if they just want to call us and, you know, tell us a sob story, of course we feel bad for whatever they're going through. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, that's really not our client's problem. Uh, we, we want to try to work with them as much as possible. Um, but it, it depends on the response. And if they just want to call me and yell at me and tell me that I'm crazy <laughs> for sending them a letter, then I'm not going to give them much time at all uh, beyond what we said in the letter before we move on to the next step. So really it uh, just depends on how they respond. If they come to us hat in hand, we are much more likely to try and work with them and encourage our clients to, to really work something out. Um, but uh, we can usually tell pretty quickly whether somebody just wants to call and argue with us or whether they really have an interest in working something out. Yeah. It's, it, I, I want the people that are ready to make the payment, if I can get it directly to our client, uh, immediately. Those are a whole lot better calls than when they start calling you and telling you why, why you're wrong and your client's wrong and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But next story. Let's go. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of, that's going to wrap up our portion of the uh, conversation today about the uh, demand letter. So well, the question of the week, um, we're going to be talking about lien waivers. We've gotten several questions recently about, you know, hey, look, you know, is there a standard lien waiver? Which the answer is no. Uh, but if can you, you know, what if you get a lien waiver that's not accurate, right? Um, what do you do? Uh, and statutorily, I would tell you, there's a statute that says don't sign a lien waiver if it's false, because if you do, that's actually a criminal offense. I, frankly, I've not seen. I don't think I've ever seen a case. Uh, in the criminal courts on a lien waiver where it's fraudulent, unless there's been like multiple instances of that happening. Um, and again, that's just, it's hard to get a DA to, to grab hold of it and put their teeth into it. Um, but at the same time, that's the, it's there, but we tell you don't sign a lien waiver unless the dollars are right. The dates are right. The project is right. Um, it just make sure it's accurate. Um, and we we get you know if you if you have given notice to Leans NC um, theoretically uh, I hear from our we hear from our clients that you wind up getting lien waivers throughout the project um, just make certain that it's right so Ian I know you've had some uh, examples where this has happened what advice would you give the folks yeah I I would tell people that you know most of the time whenever they get a lien waiver it's because Money is getting ready to flow, which is a good thing. Everybody gets excited about it, but you need to slow down. You need to make sure that everything's right, um, because once you sign that lien waiver, that's kind of it. Uh, I mean, that's why uh, they get presented to you, because it's an important part of the process, and uh, there's a lot of people that depend on the accuracy of that information. So once you sign the lien waiver, you're not going to get to come back and say, whoa, 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 I, I messed up. It's uh, right. It's something that you just need to make sure you're you absolutely understand what you're signing and uh, that you're signing them at the appropriate time. Yeah, one of the things I've seen and clients call and go, "Hey, look, it says, for example, that the supplier 
uh, or sub has been paid in full, but you actually haven't been paid in full, uh, but they're going to issue a payment once you sign the lien waiver. So I tell people, don't sign that, but write in at the top, this is conditional. And the condition is that this lien waiver will be final once I receive the payment of blah, 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 whatever they owe you. And just write that in there. And, you know, some people say, well, I, if I write that in, they're not going to pay me. But I'm going to tell you, if you sign it saying you've been paid in full, they may have an argument they don't have to pay you. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things that you just you can't be afraid to push back on the person that is presenting it to you because it needs to be right from both of your standpoints. That's right. Yeah. So if you get lien waivers, and we have this happen with clients a lot, and, and they just they read it and they go, oh, that makes sense, or, or something in your gut doesn't feel right, send it to us by email. We'll take a look at it and uh, give you some guidelines on it and hopefully help you with it. But uh, so take advantage of that opportunity. It's a it's a joy to help folks with those kinds of things. So today, any other comments, Ian? Nope. I uh, hope this was helpful and that uh, now you have a little better understanding of demand letters. Thank you all so much for listening. Look forward to connecting with you soon.